Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics in bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Love is in the air. Well, at least in the airwaves. Today, we'll be talking about all of the concepts that constitute our idea of love. From our favorite colors to our lifelong partners, where do we draw the line on what we consider love? Are there ethical issues we need to account for when discussing love? How does love affect us differently from a physical, emotional, or psychological viewpoint? Is there a universality across humankind in regards to love, or is the experience highly individual? Stick with us as we delve into these topics and try to uncover the mysteries of love. All right, so here we are a couple weeks after Valentine's Day, um, talking about love. Um, I'll admit that when I when we started to research it a little bit, I was not super enthused. I was I'd rather talk about the origin of the universe or something else. Love really doesn't doesn't tickle my fancy. But then the more I got into it, the more I started to realize, man, this maybe even more than anything else we've talked about kind of does touch on each of the philosophical mainstays. It does. It, you know, it weaves them together. There is a lot of aesthetics. There's a lot of um, free will and self and knowledge and all of those things play into, um, you know, the idea of love. So, I'm I'm pretty excited about it now and see how it works out. So let's start with um, trying to define or you know come up with a description for love. Generally, it I think that it it falls into two categories. There's an impersonal and there's an interpersonal. Is would you agree with that? Is is that kind of how philosophy broadly? Uh, although I would say that the most traditional ancient. Uh, philosophers up through A.C. Grayling, who's still writing. He has a marvelous essay on this. He he has, a, I think, it's eight definitions of categories. So yeah, the inner personal and the within is a good start. Okay. So, how have philosophers defined love in the in the past? Give give us what was the original definition? Where did they think that it stemmed from? What did they think the cause was? What's the background? Back to the Back to the pre-Socratics, so and the Socratics and that cluster. So you you have essentially three kinds uh, under which they've construed things. So philia, which is friendship, lo- love of brother, uh, the the camaraderie kind of thing, and eros, which is the passionate erotic love, and and then agape, which is selfless love of humanity and construed as coming from far beyond ourselves. That's that's where the Christian and, and other spiritual traditions really go a lot. Okay. That's cool. I, that's a good start. Um, and that that makes me think about you know, trying to define love is really a, a super fuzzy border that I don't think people consider too much because we sort of throw the word around in our modern culture. So you mentioned, you know, Philadelphia, brotherly love. So 
But I think that there's a lot of philosophers that would draw a distinction between loving something and liking something or loving something and having a friendship. So like, how do you draw those lines? Do you and I, do you and I have a friendship or do we have brotherly love? Where does that distinction? Well, the ancients. All right. So Aristotle said that philia is the highest form of love. Uh, that, that, uh, so from Aristotle's viewpoint, uh, you and I would be having, uh, uh, a very, uh, dynamic, uh, philia, P-H-I-L-I-A, which, which is to say learning from each other and, and growing therefrom for the conversations and, and probing the universe, uh, all for the purposes of enjoying the company and becoming becoming better in the world. So it leads to an ethical component. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, Aristotle says it's the highest form of intimacy. Okay. Trumps everything else. I don't want to say that word. Anyway, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it overcomes other things. It, it, on the hierarchy, it's the highest for Aristotle. But his teacher, Plato, said, so he was he 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 denied his teacher, which is fine. <laughs> Plato says that that eros of all things passion, because uh, it, it, for for Plato erotic love, the passions uh, mean that you are finding beauty in very specific things, whether elements of objects or or people, and that. That concentration on detail within another person or a piece of art. Uh, you know, I've just been admiring one of your instruments, and and it it's you know it's not what you would call erotic love in the case of the 21st century and all the, the websites people go to and that kind of stuff. But it's but it is the sense of finding beauty in very particular shapes or or details, and that that Plato says, of course, that. That's self-fulfilling for him. It leads back to the ideals of form. So he says that that kind of love can take you to realize that the universe is composed of forms and we can recognize the beauty in that. That's kind of an interesting insight. So it's highly aesthetic, <clears throat> highly aesthetic in nature. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it the aesthetics of it, the shapes that make it important to him? Or is it what the motivation that it leads to, because I think if you look at it, probably Eros leads to the highest, the highest amount of human motivation. You know, if you have brotherly love with somebody, you know, you're, you'll probably have a lot of engaging discussions and you'll have a very close friendship, but in terms of how that spurs you to action or, you know, with an agape love spurring you to action, but with Eros, you can think of plenty of, of situations where, I mean, essentially somebody's passion draws them into action. Is that part of the component or is it? For, for, okay, so, so basically you just walked us through about 2,000 years again, so, <laughs> as you are wont to do. All right, so, so for Plato, it's qualities and recognizing qualities as universally recognizable qualities and therefore the structure of the universe itself in some important way. What you just said about Thiele is interesting because leaping forward to the later 20th century and into now, there is this huge discussion going on of the moral motivation 
of love. So, so essentially, whether it's filial uh, joy or love in a erotic or passionate sense, it's still constraining and shaping our moral response to the larger universe. And so it's a process. So we, we don't generally break down the categories in the same kind of ways that the ancients did, but looking at the process of what any combination of love, uh, kinds of love, do to the way we move in the world and how we try to uh, attain some moral good. Okay. So I think that we still we still need to come back to defining it a little bit. So I go out, you know, I've, I definitely have friends where we go and we, we do some rock climbing or we hang out and, you know, do something like that, but maybe we don't have discussions like this. So that would be a friendship. And so I'm just trying to figure out where, where are we drawing the lines here between, you know, for trying to form this, uh, a cell wall of love in it, but it's a highly osmotic barrier. You know, there's things that are coming in and out. Like how, how do we actually even define what it is? Well, if you think about the idea of, of, of a meeting of a meeting and bonding of equals primarily to find wisdom or to accomplish something joyful or something self-revelatory, something that grows oneself, that that's the filial love. You, you're, you're just, the things you've told me of the military, for instance, you know, never leave someone behind and, and you always have to have each other's backs. So that is the essence of one kind of filial love. I know there'd be people grumbling. I know that don't use that word, when we're, but but you do. You love each other. You are comrades. And while you may not talk philosophically, although some may have a smoke and talk about life and death, and but but you are bonded, and you are seeking something together. If that is only to stay alive and to accomplish a mission, those are, the word only doesn't fit with that. That's pretty pretty major so that would be in the ancient definition filial love okay so we have that and that makes sense do you think that can be extrapolated to agape love and eros love and personal and interpersonal absolutely okay so it sounds like then that in order for there to be love as opposed to um friendship with a person or admiration of a piece of art it sounds like there has to be an emotional and intellectual quality mixed into the um, the initial attraction or interaction with the media. Okay, all right. So I think that that that's a good segue into um, you know the purposes of love and really looking at the physical and emotional and, and psychological reason reasons for it. Now we're not an explicit podcast, so there's. There's things we're going to stay away from, <laughs> all right? But with those boundaries set, um, how? what are those, those categories, those things that we established? There has to be an emotional and intellectual piece to love. How do they, what are some of the things that are 
the physical or intellectual and no. how do they interact? It's not, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not unacceptably explicit to, to let's go to Schopenhauer, for instance, Schopenhauer is the pessimist, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the 19th century. So Schopenhauer basically was anticipating, uh, I think, neurocognitive philosophy, which we've talked about before. And, and in some ways, evolutionary issues before they were full blown discussed because he was always dour. He was the Eeyore of philosophers. And Schopenhauer said, you know, let's, let's basically, I'm paraphrasing awfully, let's face it. It's just about procreation, where it's just about keeping the species going. And, and we, and we decorate it with all this other stuff so that we can accept that. But if we get right down to the basis of it, it is about, uh, the urge to survive, the urge to wrestle with the other thing we've talked about, which is death. Right. So all of the dating and, um, you know, picking out drapes and all of this stuff is essentially just peacock feathers. That's right? what he would say. Yeah. But the romantics, the romanticist movement, capital R, uh, in the 17, 18, and even 1900s, even to now in, in art sometimes, but the, but the largest was then. Uh, this was the unrequited love. This was recognizing the power of nature as a metaphor for the power of one's own feelings. And gee, if those feelings didn't get requited, then you're making powerful art because you're you're recognizing the Sturm und Drang. You're recognizing that that waves crashing and and lightning and mountains, which just diminish all of us into this tiny dot are all the power of, of nature and the power of emotions. And this overwhelms us almost to the point of horror, which is a kind of sublimity. And so we recognize the sublime by being denied. <laughs> That's a super interesting thing you just mentioned, because this might be a little bit off topic, but I don't think it is. I was reading an article yesterday and I, I thought about sending it to you, but I didn't. It was, um, scientist was you know they're trying to figure out how to get kids interested in science and stuff and um basically what he found through this study that he did was that in order to get kids interested in science you need to inspire awe so you need to make them have a moment where they're aware of things that are outside of their knowledge schemas and uh you know beyond their ability to comprehend and then once you have that moment that by itself will cause an interest in them because now they feel like, okay, well now I have to understand what that is. And I have to build knowledge schemas. It's almost like an instinctive imperative. You have to, you have to do it. So that was kind of an interesting study. And that's almost a form of love because we are talking about the emotional and the intellectual component, you know, like that feeling of awe, that's exactly what a feeling of awe is. Awe is passion. Yeah, of, a, of a kind, yeah. and and that's what the romantic movement was about. It wasn't to say that love, that just physical. No, it, this is why the awesomeness of the elements and recognizing our place in it. That's why the Hudson School of Art, the Hudson Valley School of Art, where you see very small figures standing on a ledge, and the entire Catskill Range in front with maybe a thunderstorm over there, and you. And the awe of it, just like a, a cosmologists, people studied the beginnings of the universe. So, you know, Carl Sagan talking about the pale blue dot, which some of my students uh, still enjoy. You know that that to realize, 
how small we are, and yet the passion for life that is ignited by that is a requisite part of of love of what one does. So is that is that a agape love? Is that would that fall into that definition or it it, it can if yes if if it makes you appreciate humanity itself or put the word itself with it whatever life itself you know the big picture mm-hmm. uh, so and then uh, you know agape go, goes into Christian and and other spiritual traditions of which is looking at the big picture for the sake of of caring for others beyond oneself, which is altruistic version of agape. So yes, it's osmotic as you said before. Okay. All right. So we've covered, we've covered some of, I think that covers a lot of the emotional and and psychological um, sort of impact. What about, cultural considerations um do you think that a setting you know in somebody's background influences influences love and i feel like on face value that question seems kind of ridiculous because anybody who follows any sort of you know is into uh 21st century psychology or sociology realizes that people and cultures are highly individual systems you know like there's no one size fits all but at the same time you can look out and see love in pretty much every culture so it begs the question well maybe it's something that it is a universally um encountered it is yeah and and this is where the you you mentioned before drawing in all of the different elements of branches of philosophy. This is where people like Martha Nussbaum, who was very major, I mean, still, uh, still is, she's still with us, talking about the epistemology of love. And so if, if, it, if it's not just these wandering freelance moments, if there is such a thing as love that lasts, and if we can see it, if we go to a different place and we see people who we say are obviously in love, the epistemologist would say, well, how do you know? Right. Right. And, and people like Martha Nussbaum and, and uh, Annette, Annette Beyer would say that it's, it's about the, the, the integrated structure of relationship. So it's not just, oh, I kiss you, and therefore we must be in love. Man says to woman, or woman says to woman, or whatever. We no, it's a, 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 not the flash in the pan thing. It's do I want to watch you grow older, and 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 embrace the changes because there will be changes, and and so is it all integrated? There are patterns, there are habits. And all of those things are part of the recognizable knowledge of love, even if we haven't quantified it entirely. Okay, but so you mentioned how love is more than, you know, you want to grow old with somebody and that sort of things. But now we're coming back to the categories that we established earlier. Um, Is it so there's arrows and that's, you know, the, the passion and whatnot. 
and I guess that this is just a uh, an alternate form of the the philia question we were talking about earlier when we were trying to establish what's a friendship and what is brotherly love. Now we're trying to do the same thing, both with romantic relationships. So there's plenty of people that might say, you know, based on the duration of a fling that they have, they might consider it love or not, even if they don't have an intent to grow old with these people. Or, or maybe it's not that malicious. It's not that they don't have an intent to. It's just something that doesn't occur to them. So where do we draw the line with that then? How would we establish Eros love? I mean, it almost sounds like that would be the definition of it, but I think that we might be getting caught up in old terms as well that have transferred. Good for you. Robert Solomon would, I think, uh, say good for you. He was a neo, neo-existentialist. I like that term. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're getting too caught up, or some would say, not you and I personally, but in this discussion is reflecting of this, we can get so caught up in categorization that we miss the more dynamic quantum fluidity of it. So that, uh, for instance, Robert Solomon says, we have to view it as a dynamic thing. We have to look at how, how we live in this specific historical moment, in this specific cultural context, uh, governs, our intimacy with others. And whatever that intimacy is, if that intimacy is an important shaping of our own identity, then it's love. And so the neo-existentialists would say, what's with all of these subcategorizations when one really ought to be recognizing the word intimacy and, and, and all the categorizations that that can imply? Because... Every intimate relation is not the same thing. You can have a, a marvelous friendship never having met somebody mm. and and write with, uh, with unrestrained, any unrestraint about the thoughts that one has, the feelings that one has about this life, which is, is not an attempt to engage in, a, in an erotic relationship, but which, which creates an intimacy, an undeniable intimacy of, of thought, which then shapes one's own identity as one continues to think upon feelings and, and thoughts. And so instead of getting hung up in the, well, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? Is this intimate in any way or is it not? Okay. So that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, is there an intellectual and emotional component that shapes self-identity? an extent so there we go we have self we have the idea of language and how language all plays into this so all the philosophical themes are coming together in this discussion which is why it's kind of a it's a cool topic to there, it is and there's there's still a, a, a Lynn de Botton, who is also still alive says we have a very tenuous grip and what love means. See, this is why you, you 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 would like his work, and and so we tr- we try to be mature in our relationships. We analyze what we think love is. He says. So this is right on on, on point, and and we look at our emotions and what our motivations are. And this is where the ethics come. It would be hard to say that you love someone if you're just using them as a means to an end. And then we go back to Kant and the categorical imperative, which is you must never think you're ethical if you're using somebody just for your own purposes to uh, uh, your own end. Right? Right. 
Uh, and and so he picks that up uh, and says, we don't really know a whole lot about what love is. We experience it, varieties of it. But if, in fact, it is leading us to our own maturity, and that's the identity thing, then it must be good. Okay. So that helps that helps us, you know, conceptualize a little bit more. So now we're going to throw a whole new monkey wrench into the works, which is getting back to talking about different cultural, religious, and environmental differences. Because what that adds into it now is that if we, you know, we're starting to understand that, you know, if you have uh, an emotional and an intellectual connection that's shaping you, then that it's, it's a love of some kind. But now what we're finding is that across different cultures and religions and environments, what constitutes the emotional and the intellectual and the aesthetic interactions is going to change. What is aesthetically appealing to us is going to be completely different to somebody in West Senegal or a different place in the world. And religiously, um, you know, the the same thing. Certain, uh, you know, one religion is going to hold something to be more emotionally um, interactive than another one. Um, intellectually, obviously, you can see that even within cultures, you know, what people interact with, what they think about is going to change from person to person. So now we have a whole different um, sort of... A hymn just came to mind that I sang in my youth when I was in church choir. And I even sang when I was attending a, a, a local church for a while. <clears throat> And and the uh, part of the refrain is, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And in some versions of that, he tells me I'm his friend. But he walks with me, and he talks with me. Well, that sounds pretty filial. Mm. But it sounds like a filial agape, because it is... Uh, uh, if if Jesus can walk with everyone and talk with everyone at the same time in their own unique ways, there's this very interesting meshing of those two things. I can't speak uh, Quranically on that because uh, I don't the as I understand it and as I've understood it from Muslim uh, friends and students and reading uh, the Quran. It's not the same kind of personal relationship necessarily, but it's more of a direct thinking of Allah. Uh, and I wonder how much of that comes down to. But I don't know that for you know for absolutely certain. So. Yeah, I wonder how much of that comes down to deity diversification. Like if you look That's at an interesting term. <laughs> I just coined it now. Um, so if you look at Christianity, they have the idea of a triune God. So you have. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they're perceived to have different relational interactions with the human. And I think that maybe the agape versus the filial versus, you know, in the case of the Holy Spirit, maybe even more of an arrow sort of thing, living, yeah, living within you. Maybe that plays a part. And, I'm, you know, probably with Hinduism and a whole bunch of different gods, you have a similar dynamic. Whereas with, um, you know, Islam or maybe Buddhism, which is more of a philosophy than a religion, those elements are sort of absent. 
I don't know about absolute. I, I, I wouldn't say absolute for Islam. I think there's very, very deep, passionate love of God, love of Allah. I, I, that absolutely is there. And, and, then, and there's a logic to the stories, the sacred stories. So I think it's, it might not be exactly the same balance if we're trying to do the weights and measures empiricism, but I think what you hit upon is actually those three elements probably run through all of the spiritual traditions, and that's that's the important part, because now epistemologically we can say, okay, there's a universality to the three things that Aristotle was talking about. Yeah, and probably that that perception from the different religious members is a huge formational part of the belief system because if you suggested to a christian that they believe in a um polytheistic system they would be very upset because it's it's a triune god it's three gods in it in one but it's not three gods whereas in hinduism they do see it as three gods whereas in islam it's just one god but he has these three different qualities and and all of these things probably really but don't tell that to the unitarians yeah yeah well yes the oneness of everything who also have this marvelous hymn to evolution that i just love this is back to the hymn again i my first time ever experiencing the marvel of, of the, I'm not under you know I'm not underwriting or endorsing anything. I just to to be a student and to uh, with my then girlfriend to go to a and now wife to go to a a church where there was extolling the joyful beauty of the uh, primordial slime out of which we emerged in a church setting was mind blowing. But but that but even for a young person that I was at that point that pulled together this idea of love, of scientific knowledge that can lead us to spiritual revelation, all one package. Yeah, yeah, it's funny <laughs> with the aesthetic, the music. Yeah. See, it's <laughs> it's funny because having a philosophical conversation like this, and you know, starting with identifying major elements and then moving into how it works with culture, I just have this idea in our head of like being like um anthropologists you know being dressed up as indiana jones in a jungle somewhere and discovering these different oh wow you know how do they do this you know and, and that's really what we're doing but on intellectual levels we're looking at different religions and cultures and we have that those main tenets that we establish now we're trying to figure out how these vastly different cultures or religions or places incorporate those elements into into their society i if i'm going off track you can tell me but you just expired inspired a number of things one in the the show that i'm directing now it's march 2019 uh called encounters and i was telling you before we started one of my students from kersal has written a poem and in the poem one of the poems is called reality is and he's taking on a lot of things in the re that's the refrain reality is and he says at one point in his poem, reality is love is lust now. And he separates a couple, both of whom are very upset with each other because that's that's it. And and it points to a, a, a not misinterpretation, but an overabundance of focus on the immediate physical to the to the detraction of relationship. Across the culture, I mean that's that's part of what's happening with 
what's led so much with me too mm. with women who can't turn right left or center but somebody's either trying to touch them or have them or assume a physical ownership or, or the boundary issues abound and 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 the ancients would say that's because there's a gross imbalance in what we understand love to be yeah and that's interesting because what we're seeing is a huge societal shift in what's acceptable in terms of um relationships in love within the past five years tops you know that's short time frame we're seeing this huge change but i don't think that it's so much um that things were vastly different before but i think it's the social media aspect so it's doing it's doing good and bad with that imbalance of lust so essentially you have yeah so on the one hand you it makes it much more easily acceptable and accessible to act on and instantly gratify lust with certain um apps and things but on the other hand it gives people a platform to express dissatisfaction with a lust imbalance that has existed for decades centuries since the beginning of Probably humanity you know? so now for the first time some of these underprivileged groups are have a platform to express dissatisfaction with a way they've been treated in such a way um i'm not in isolation yeah, anymore yeah. there's this voice and there are these hundred voices and there's these thousand voices <laughs> okay yeah so it's a super interesting dynamic because you yeah. see the imbalance and then you see how this explosion of social media has done good and not i guess not necessarily bad but you're just seeing the variety of influences it's having with with the i the concept of love and how it's you know i think that it was a latent inherent part of culture for a very long period of time but now it's something that's very much in the spotlight and that's that's why we go back to baton who said that we have a limited grasp on this and we have to keep thinking about it every day and keep feeling about it <laughs> every day until we've reached some kind of maturity right. with this. Because, you know, that's, that's my, that's my slogan in life, you know, is that everything is education and philosophy because every second you're learning something and then the next second you're making sense of what you just learned. And so that's my biggest pet peeve with people. You can you can believe whatever you want, and I'm not going to have an issue with that. You know, I might question how you got to that point, and we might I might make you walk through the steps, you know, show your work. But you're entitled to believe what you want to believe. That's not any of my business. But what my what my business is is if you you have this viewpoint, and you're unwilling to accept any change when introduced to outside information you know that's that's the and if you act on that viewpoint in such a way that you are causing harm to others so that might seem off topic but i think that has a lot to do with relationships too because bringing in our idea of self and our ship of theseus and and whatnot you know 10 years from now my wife you anybody that you anybody that you know is not going to be the same person whether or not they are the same person with different planks, different yeah. boards on their ship, or whether or not they are a different person, the point is they will not be identical to how they are now. And so if you're unwilling to accept outside information, you're unwilling to accept change, that's going to wreak havoc with your relationships and your idea of love. So really, it's 
and this is just a soapbox moment. My my personal view is that you have to be willing to at least look at and determine the validity of outside information at any point it's presented to you. You can't you you we can't afford to just be presented with something and on face value throw it out the window. Nope, I I that's a good soapbox. This is uh, Kevin Perry. Kevin Perry was summarizing uh, the moral motivation love discussion that's gone on since the 1990s and it's still very much part of the philosophical discussion love constrains the motivations we have it shapes us and provides us with the values or ends that guide our reasons to doing things love helps stabilize our various impulses desires and concerns and helps direct our actions toward a focused goal that is larger than ourselves. now that's ancient in the sense of whether it's filial love or or finding beauty to be a universal guide to goodness, whatever it is, the idea of stability. I love the stabilizes. That's that seems essential to consistency in morals, ethics, whatever one wants to call it. And and that it guides you to something larger. It doesn't say it has to guide you to something spiritual, but it guides you to something. And 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 my soapbox moment, absolutely. These conversations that we have guide me to rethinking things that I'm talking to my students about, and connect me with past conversations. My my relationship with my wife, where we converse about getting older, and and you know, it's not always a smooth. Discussion because one perceives oneself very differently at, at a point in life. At 61, I don't perceive myself as 61. Uh, I'm told that that's getting old. Okay, well, yeah, I get that. But it doesn't phase me. And perhaps it should, but it doesn't. Not out of some resistance to, oh, I can't be that. Well, of course I'm going to be that. And, 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 and becoming that. But it doesn't feel that way. Right. Tomorrow, perhaps it does. Tomorrow, perhaps I'm gone. And, and it's that nowness that I think is really essential. Tomorrow is really not up to worrying about because right now is, is so, so a conversation can lead to art. A, a lovely discussion with your wife can lead to writing a song. A, you know, a, 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 um, an emotional moment with a cast of, of young actors uh, accomplishing something on stage that makes you realize I wouldn't have been anywhere else at any moment else than choosing to be right here with them, realizing that moment. That's what I think that, that this this means of, of helping direct our actions toward a focused goal that is that is larger than who we are right and yeah no and we're absolutely doing that i think that some people might listen to it and think okay well they've they've done a lot of research and have this planned out but i mean if i'm if i'm asking you a question on here there's a probably about a 50 50 percent chance whether i'm asking you rhetorically so that the listener can understand yes. or whether i'm genuinely asking you <laughs> does, no really tell me does yeah. this i yeah. because i'm i'm learning you're learning as we're doing this because there's new information being presented from different perspectives and we're making sense out of it as we're as we're doing it. And that's what philosophy is. It's not studying old books. It's 
establishing new knowledge now. Philosophia. Mm-hmm. The love of oh, knowledge. Yeah. So that's good. And I think that it, uh, at the very beginning of, of what you were just saying, um, it brings us into love and, and morality and ethics. So can love ever be evil? Being rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> or asking. <laughs> are, are, we, are we rhetorically probing that question, Joel? If I told you, then people would never know just how dumb I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> no, quite the opposite. So I guess there's two questions there. Yes. Can love be evil? Which is, I think, the more difficult question. And then... Um, okay, so I, I'm, I, you can tell me to shush, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come into this for a second. Uh, I'm going to take one uh, an example that just comes to mind because of past volunteer work and, st- and li- every, everyday life with the people we live among and my, and my, and my students. This is age-independent. A domestic violence situation where it's it's predominantly men abusing women, but it also happens in, in gender other alternate gender relationships. And if a person is harming another person bec- and, and claiming that they love them, no ethical system, no viable ethical system in this world would say yes. Any any traditional religious system that says you can harm your wife, that's where I'm just off the ranch entirely. Mm. No. If you can harm another person because you love them, then you really don't love them. Now, let's take something else because I can just hear voices saying, well, what if you're a parent and you have to be stern with your child? Being stern with a child is a very vague term. If you're stern with the child trying to guide them and you love them, and if they don't understand what you're trying to do for them and they might feel hurt by it emotionally, and it's healthy, that will go away. But if you're if you're causing harm to a child, you don't love them. And if you convince yourself that you do, then you need help. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's there's the three aspects to that again. You know, we talked about the physical and the emotional and the psychological. And the quote that you just read talks about how, you know, love is about forming those end goals, getting to those focused points. And so bringing those three together, what you realize is that if the intent of discipline is to bring a child to maturity, help them grow up, help them see an error of their way, and you're not doing harm in a physical, emotional, or intellectual fashion, then it's it's discipline. But if you're going to cause harm in one of those ways, or if you're causing harm without the intent of actually getting to that place, if you're causing harm because they made you angry, or they did something embarrassing or something like that, That's that ceases to be discipline at that point. And it's something different. Yeah, and then we go to the utilitarian. We'll go back to Kant and, and, and the, that whole group of them. Some people did debate now whether you can, the utilitarianism even can be viable in the 21st century, and that's an entirely different discussion. But the, the utilitarians said that 
If your primary purpose is to start out by causing harm, then you cannot say that you're doing the greatest good for the greatest number. And so we, if you go to you know, movies like The Watchmen or the, the stories of any kind, narratives of any kind, and you find someone who wants to make the world better and by so doing that they're going to eliminate a chunk of the world, that's not ethical. And, and and utilitarians would say, you know, it, the categorical, the idea that that you're going to do something for the greatest good for the greatest number has to be diffuse. It can't be for one group over another. So if you're if you're trying to eliminate a group, or if you're if you're trying to subjugate a group, then you can't call yourself ethical, even if you say, well, it's the greatest good for the greatest number. What of imperialist? people or or you know, capitalist people or whatever it happens to be you, it, it doesn't work okay so well let's talk about thanos then ah okay that, the avengers that, <laughs> it's indiscriminate he doesn't know which half of the universe is going to die he just knows half of it's going to die and he knows or thinks that he knows that in that getting rid of half the rest of the universe is going to prosper and he does have at the very least, an Eros sort of passion in him to do so, is that is that a form of love? And if it's not, what is it? It's it's not a form of love. It's a form of self-delusion. And I'm so glad you did this, because the new movie's coming. And I can't. <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, because when you listen to the dialogue, when you uh, or read, because it's wonderful, you can read the whole script online, been released, it's, you know, not pirated and and you can see that when he says no one else could do this i can't do his voice so I, you know <clears throat> he says that more than once in the film and he's willing to sacrifice anything including his adopted daughter look at what i will give up in order to save the world the universe and nobody else can do this. This is a, an act of extreme arrogance. It's also an act of illogic. I mean, if you want to look at the, I I thought about this even back when I was a you know younger person reading Thanos in the Avengers storylines. Okay, so you call half the universe, half the living things, indiscriminately. The indiscriminate part would be utilitarian, mm. except that there's no knowing. I mean, if you, re if you destroy half of all the species on any planet, you're unlikely to have a, a healthy planet. I mean, what so, if half of them is all of the males? <laughs> well, what if, yes, what if half of them, I mean, th th just look at this for us. So that would be, so maybe we'd have four and a half billion people left on the earth. That's a lot of people. But if we had half some people listening to this are going to love this. What if we had half the polar bears? What if we had half the grain diversity? What if we had half the oceanic diversity? We would die. Biodiversity, as we know, is the absolute essence of survival and, and thriving as an integrated ecosystem. So you can say, oh, half. Well, this makes lots of room for everybody, but it's it's totally without validity. Okay. So I. You're making good points, but you're not off the hook yet. <laughs> Here's the thing with Thanos is I think that we're coming to a point where we're, we're trying to figure out. So is love a concept out here that we're discovering or is it something 
that is within a person that they are expressing. So with Thanos, let's say he has self-delusion. Let's say he doesn't have proper uh, mental capacities. But let's say he's still feeling that passion. In his twisted intellect, he still thinks he's doing the right thing. There's still an intellectual and an emotional engagement and with an end that he's trying to reach. But from the outside, we just see, you just use the word, twisted. So the outside has looked in and said, this is not healthy. This is not balanced. This is not what you think that it is. But he's a fascinating character. I do not deny that to you. Okay, so let me bring up another, another thing then. So I think that we're still, so we're still looking at. And I'm still love, on the hook. Is, yeah, is I love an idea? <laughs> is love an idea that we are all trying to figure out? Or is it something that in, or originates within the person and is individual to everybody? So using, I think using the, that, the line of reasoning that I'm, I think I'm misunderstanding it, but we'll see. So 15, 50 years ago, um, a, you know, a, somebody who was transgender, that sort of, or, or gay, you know, hundreds of years ago or whenever, that sort of relationship might have been looked at by the majority of society and said that that is twisted or yes. something. So is love something that is being decided by um, societal norms and mores and that sort of thing as we progress through time? Or is it Who's who's making this decision on what is acceptable? I'm glad you didn't let me off the hook. So so and and no, you're not misunderstanding. You're 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 perceiving the 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 deep complexity of this that that I can't begin to have all the answers to. But for a society to tell people what is normal when it comes to love, and you're going to say I'm being inconsistent, but we'll. For society to say, we can define what love is. We can define what marriage is. But if they're saying that because they say, well, this is in, this has been told to us in divine intervention. It's just passing the buck to the the next outsider, the bigger outsider. Well, we, we see it in the book, and therefore it's so. Well, well books ch- change. So, because still, the idea is, I can't stand back and abide if I am a person, who, and I'm not, but if I am a person who can, could not stand back and abide a variety of intimate love between other human beings, and if that's healthy, you know, this is where people would get really nuts, but let them, because it is. If, if two people love each other and healthy as defined by aren't hurting and abusing each other, and are contributing to society. And if you want to go to all the tropes, paying their taxes, working in viable jobs, volunteering in the community and so on, for a, for a, a group of moralists to come along and say, no, that's not acceptable because ancient tradition tells us. And that's, to me, that's nonsense. And I speak out on the soapbox, but unapologetically. That's not the same thing as, as saying, oh, well, you want to go around and you want to kill this person, this person, this person. You'll put a blindfold on. You'll just blast, and whoever you hit, well, that makes the world better. You you you, you can't equate those two things, right? Okay. All right. So I'm sure that that will give listeners plenty to think about. Plenty to uh, everybody's coming to their own conclu- 
conclusions, decisions about things. But we have bigger things to talk about. We're going to run out of time. Um, I really wanted to talk about if love can be a free will choice, if free will exists. Now, we already had that discussion, so we're going to have to operate from the assumption that we have some some kind of free will. Okay, we'll go from that assumption. Good. So, is it a free will choice? Because if you look at it um, scientifically, you know, there's it's pretty much three different cocktails of drugs that you have in your brain at different points in love based upon how new a relationship is or how committed a relationship is, this sort of thing. So, how much choice is involved there? As opposed to um, something that's just sort of bio-ingrained into, okay, I'm programmed to aesthetically appreciate this and to emotionally or, you know, an emotional or intellectual interaction of this type is something that I find pleasing and now I'm on this road. Do you remember realizing that you were in love? I I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. <laughs> I remembered I can't put a date stamp on it or a time stamp on it, but I re I remember being absolutely moving from fondness uh, to fascination to wanting to be part of the interactive life of that human being who was my wife when we were very young. And I, you know, I, yeah, so this is a digression was too long. You can tell me to stop. But uh, unfortunately, and this is a great sadness, and it has changed at the college, which is good. At the college that I went to, there was a thing which was the ugliest thing in the world. I hated the name when we got there. There's a thing that it was a, a book of photographs of all the incoming freshmen. And it, it was horrifically called the pig book. Mm. Now, in that book, with all those pictures, you could look and see who you were sharing, what other 600 people were there. And people, of course, would look at the book and say, oh, I'm going to be in love with this person, or I want to you know, have a, ha have a moment with that other person or so on. That, that, that's the ugly, ugly part. But if you, if you scan through it and you look at it and you say, those eyes look like there's a whole lot of stuff going on behind them. Um, I wonder what that person's like. And you have no idea that you're going to meet that person because the chances of meeting them, even on a small campus, aren't, aren't huge. That's very different than saying, yep, there's my target. Now I'm going to go out, you know, and, and you don't know if it's going to lead to love or lust or disinterest or, or whatever it is. But there's a moment at which if you interact with somebody, you, whether you call it, whether the pheromones work or the chemicals work, or I think there's still more to it than that. I think it's the, the, the recognition of depth. Hmm. Human intuition is a fascinating thing because, you know, every, every week I'm reading new studies that bring up new insights that they just didn't know about. I sent you the one about you can recognize your own face even if you don't know you saw it. That's is, fascinating. <laughs> that's yes. what, but yeah, so I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, you know, there's I think in my case, it wasn't fondness, fascination relationship so much as fascination first me and my wife are very different people and when we first met it was um 
it wasn't uh, there wasn't so much fondness between us (laughs) but but that's but the fascination is there there's something there in your intuition that says i need to know more about what's happening here you know and uh yeah i think that that's an interesting part of it so how do you think that plays in with with free will do you do so do you think there's that fascination and then you have a choice. I choose to, to go, yes. Okay. I, you know, I, I can say this because it, it'll, I'm sure it'll be taken the right way, but my wife, I've, you know, I've told the origin story so many times with the, the people that we're close with. It. I chose to go study my Shakespeare for my first Shakespeare, well, actually my second class, in the lounge area, which was co-ed, in the girl's dorm where she lived, I chose to go study, read Shakespeare, take notes, and then lift my eyes from the book frequently to see if she would walk by. And when she did, then I would close my book, and I, you know, people call this stalking, but it wasn't, I was, because it took me forever to say anything. I walked, I don't know, 50 yards 60 yards, I'd be walking along, and then when she'd go off to a class, I'd keep walking and thinking, I I need to talk to this person, right? So I free will chose to go read that book in that place so that maybe I could catch a glimpse. So looking at that with a... And that was adolescent, and I know. So there's the love at first sight sort of trope, but that, that sort of implies that it's a deterministic sort of thing. Don't, don't you think like, okay, well, I, even if it is a fascination or sort of thing, yeah. like it, it's hard to, it's hard to suss out here, which is why I asked the it question. And, and, it's a, and it's a deep and impossible question. Do, was it predetermined that I was going? And in this case, predetermined, I mean, you can look at it as a, you know, some sort of religious thing. Or you can look at it as as a, a physical, yeah. evolutionary, or biological right. thing. You know, perhaps so. But if so, uh, the process can be, um, in human terms, quite I long. Think, <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, and I think that the important part, I think that what makes it free will, is that that biological impetus doesn't make it destiny. You could have had those feelings, then walked up to your wife, and she could have been like, "Ah, uh, no, thanks," and then and I would have gone away. That puts an end to it. Right. Yeah. So. I think it is free will because it it takes the two. It takes the two to to make it happen. And so you recognize that you yes, right. it takes the two. And and you recognize that if you are ethical or trying to be, and and you are in balance, and a lot of people are, if someone says that to you, you that's when you the lines get crossed with people. Nope, nope, nope. I. I we're intended for each other. You just don't know that yet. That kind of stuff that is really troubling. Mm. Someone says, no, thank you. You turn and you, you, you bury your head, hopefully not in a bottle of beer or maybe one, but not 10 or whatever it is, but you don't continue to say, well, I know best. Right. That's where the arrogance, that's where the Thanosian thing comes. So, I mean, if you look at it, Love and free will probably have the most intense relationship of any kind of free will. Love is probably the highest type of free will because you're expressing that free will every day in order to maintain your relationships. Yes. If you and I disagree on Thanos, I have the free will to say, you know what? 
I don't I don't like your viewpoint. We're not doing any more podcasts. Get out of my house. All that kind of stuff. But but I don't. Same thing with my wife. You know, my wife does something obnoxious. I have the free will to say, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm I'm done. And if I say something stupid, then then eventually and not too, too long thereafter one realizes one said something stupid and I'm sorry that is not what my intent was you know that that's that's the nature of relationship right and that but that is that is a free will kind of thing but look at love songs any generation of love songs it's all about I was meant for you and you were meant for me and that, you know whatever genre of music I, I defy you to go look at the lyrics and see if you're saying, well, I'm choosing to be in love with you as opposed to it's in the stars. Right. <laughs> and I think that that comes back to that. There's that ingrained human thing that we've talked about before. Um, it's, it's curiosity, essentially. And we have that for the beginnings of the universe. We have that for what's knowledge. I mean, that's, that's why we're having this podcast is that, that curiosity, that, that wanting to have answers. And so when you want to have the answers, it's sort of the easy way out to say that things were meant to be. (laughs) Deus ex machina. Here it comes. Yes. So let's see. I don't know if we have time to talk about any of this other stuff, (laughs) but I mean, I, I think that we had a really good conversation and I think that some of these other things are things that will pop up, um, in other episodes, but really we saw how, love connected to all of the other things that we've talked about. We talked about, you know, the sense of self and how that progresses throughout time and how it relates to love, free will, obviously a big one, ethics, a huge, huge one, you know, how that relates. And, and uh, it was really interesting. And I'm sure that it will pop up in podcasts that we talk about in the future, how love relates to um, all these other things, aesthetics. Yes. And, we're, we're you know, scaffolding. We're scaffolding as we go. Right. So, Thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions off my album Jaguars, which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep pondering.